But now when I survey with eye or mind those who may be called my pupils, though rather in the sense the apples of my eye, those who have taught me much, not least troth, that is, fidelity, who have gone on to a learning to which I have not attained, or when I see how many scholars could more than worthily have succeeded me, then I perceive with gladness that the duggle has not yet fallen by the wall and the dream is not yet silenced. Hello, my name is Ryan Hamill, and I am one of the hosts of New Humanists, the podcast of the Ancient Language Institute. As always, I'm here with Jonathan Roberts, my co-host and co-founder of the Ancient Language Institute. And as you heard, we've got a new guest with us. We are here on a quest to discover what a renewed humanism looks like for the modern world. So I'm very excited to have Colin Redimer, professor at St. Mary's College of California, vice president of the Davenant Institute, on with us today. He is a guest that Jonathan and I have wanted to have since before New Humanists uh, even aired. He's been on our list. So super glad to have him. Uh, I made the short list. Yeah, you absolutely did. Perfect topic. Um, we're kind of following up on a podcast episode from a few weeks ago on Eric Vogelin on the classics. And so we're continuing to think about the classics and this time bringing in the idea of the great books and also returning to uh, the Inklings, who we talk about from time to time, uh, branching out from Lewis, our usual suspect, to Tolkien this time. We're going to be talking about Tolkien's valedictory address to the University of Oxford as a way of talking about the classics and the great books. But yeah, first of all, Colin, great to have you. It's really good to be here. I've been uh, a fan of the Ancient Language Institute uh, since before the Ancient Language Institute was a thing. I might, I might actually be the first fan. That might be true. It's possible. In more ways than the listeners care to know. That's right. Well, yeah. Before, Just before we were on air, Colin was texting Jonathan and me, telling us his insane theories about the Aeneid, which hopefully someday we'll be able to talk about those too. But... Uh, yeah, first of all, before we dive into it, Colin, why did you want to talk through the valedictory address with us? So, uh, Tolkien's valed valedictory address is interesting for a number of reasons. For me, it ends up coming up as one of the texts that I force students to read when they take a course that I teach on Tolkien or the Inklings. So sometimes I've taught courses on the Inklings. Sometimes I teach a course just on Tolkien. And obviously, if you're going to teach a course on Tolkien... The meat and potatoes are going to be Lord of the Rings, um, things that are kind of in the canon. But by reading uh, his outside work, you you get a much fuller sense of the person. And actually, I think of, of what the project of the Lord of the Rings is, as Tolkien understood it. And nowhere is that clearer than in the valedictory address. Uh, so it tends to really open students' eyes up to who Tolkien was, uh, what he thought the project of his intellectual life was. And uh, one of the repeated themes that comes up again and again is just the way he's trying to think through the, the relationship between the language itself and what we might call like the content of the language, right? The, the meaning underneath the language, um, which could be translated into various languages. And he's discussing that here in uh, his final speech, 
as a professor at the University of Oxford uh, before he retires. And he's actually about to hand on his seat to somebody who he mentions in the in the text. And he's thinking through how the study of English has actually evolved over the course of his career. So everyone will know Tolkien for elves and orcs. Uh, well, I think it was Neville Coghill who actually, you know, when have whenever he would show up at the Inklings and do his readings of the Lord of the Rings, which was the primary driver of getting the Inklings to get together, Coghill would always say, I'm not another f-ing elf. So, <laughs> I, that might not be a, tr- a true story, but it's what it's many, you know, it's been told many times and it is of uh, pretty good veracity. Listeners, you can fill in the blank there for yourself. <laughs> um, but what I was saying was that many of our, Or maybe, I don't know, at least some of our listeners will know him beyond just the elves. They'll also know him as a professor of philology. This is the context in which Tolkien met Lewis and the Inklings grew up. Uh, Colin, do you want to give us kind of just a quick, quick hits on Tolkien as an academic, not just a kind of myth maker? Yeah, absolutely. So his, his, he gets his start not at Oxford, and he references this in the Valedictory Address. Uh, so it's a great little intro if you're trying to think about Tolkien's biography. He includes the the greatest hits in here. Uh, right after he gets out of the war, World War One, uh, gets back, and one of his former tutors at Oxford is the guy, he's the first guy who's writing the Oxford English Dictionary. So he, he remembers going in and he was first tasked with W. So he gets hired by them to work on W. And it's it's philological, right? So if anyone who's familiar loves philology, uh, loves words, and particularly in the English language, though not just people here in America, they all know the Oxford English Dictionary. So example of this, I was in uh, Ukraine lecturing at the University of Lviv, and somebody had read up on me and knew that I was a Tolkien person. And they sort of, they got really animated and wanted to talk to me about the Oxford English Dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> So if you really know Tolkien, this is something you kind of know about him. And what was the first word that he was given? Supposedly, again, this is from his recollection. It was walrus. So if you want to know the first thing that we think he was published for writing, it was the entry for walrus, the (laughs) history of the word walrus in the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, Shortly after there, he gets hired. I can't remember which, but it's one of the, the kind of brownstone colleges. Maybe it was Exeter. He's a professor of literature there under a really stellar crew as a young professor. And in the UK system, it's different, but your listeners probably can just think of it as like a junior professorship, right? Untenured, uh, but full-time work, um, kind of an adjunct, full-time adjunct thing. But he's doing great work there. Then he gets hired into a tenured gig at Oxford, and that's where he runs into uh, C.S. Lewis at a faculty meeting. Great. And so then it's at the conclusion of this illustrious career that he gives this valedictory address. And so, yeah, walk us through it. Uh, You might need to just briefly give us some background on the Oxford system, because I've read this before, but returning to it, still some of the structure of it was foreign to me. I mean, he's talking about the MA, the Master of Arts degree, as terminal. Um, He says the MA is gone, at least in its current form. So I think I think there's a bit of kind of inside baseball, inside Oxford baseball that might be helpful for kind of understanding his broader argument. The chief part, I think the big handhold that you need for understanding it is what he calls Lang versus Lit. And that's probably where we'll, we'll, we'll what we'll really dive into and then talk about classics and great books. 
Yeah. So a couple things to know about the history of higher education uh, that he's referring to. So one is you have to be able to make the distinction between the English system and the continental system, uh, which is primarily dominated by Germany. So if you're from anyone who's not as familiar, you can Google the German research university model. And, and that's more like the American system. So the American system is more so in our modern experience, the inheritor of the German research university, even though I think actually what's interesting is early America is more like uh, the English model in some interesting ways. So what's one, a few of the major differences? The biggest one is that in the English system, historically, to master something was to master something. <laughs> that, that, that makes that makes a ton of sense. Um, and so an MA would have been considered the final degree. It was the finishing degree. It was the degree that, that you got if you wanted to teach at the university level. In the German model, it was the doctorate. And the distinction is that in an MA, uh, an MA assumes, and he even says somewhere that there's students who want to just kind of hang around for a little while more and learn a bit more, right? Yeah. Meanwhile, many of the better students, I mean, those who have studied English for love, or at least with love as one of their mixed motives, wish to spend more time in a university, more time in learning things in a place where that process is or should be approved in given facilities. That's right. Yeah. And so, you know, the idea of the MA is, you know, university professors were never well compensated. So it's not like this is something you did to like even learn, earn a middle class living. Often, you know, historically, they were they were celibate. Uh, if they weren't in the clergy, they were still celibate related to the clergy, partially because you just couldn't make enough money to really raise a family. So there was this love for knowledge, which kind of superseded other interests that you had. And those were the kind of strange autistic people who were like, I'm going to, you know, very, very quirky. Who's the guy? There was a guy on Twitter who was referencing this, that this is like a lost thing that it used to be. Uh, Gobri, Pascal Emmanuel Gobri. That's right. You used to have these people in universities. and It was a trope because it was true, who were just extremely eccentric. Because those are the only kinds of people who would want to waste their life, you know, quote unquote, waste life doing this stuff. Right. Um, Making no money and just like reading books and arguing with people all day. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a particular <laughs> human type, right? Who really yeah. wants that. Whereas as you fold the university system, the university system into broader society, you lose a lot of those types. Um, so the MA was the teaching degree. You're just going to steep more in the tradition. And eventually, if you hang around the university long enough, you'll, you will consider you qualified to teach at the university level. The PhD is distinct because it presumes that you're going to produce a new body of research. So you're going to produce new knowledge. Um, you're going to produce some document which represents genuine advancement of human knowledge to put it more generously than saying produce new knowledge there's a philosophical distinction i'm playing with there so that's the first major thing when when tolkien is writing this and really right at the beginning of his you know beginning of his career the german model is dominating everyone and so people in the uk have no sense of self anymore no megalopsuchia these guys are they're just an exhausted civilization and this is the <laughs> hardest thing to tell my student like to convince my students of when because i've i've taken this students. is what in the 60s when is this happening oh i i mean i think this is happening from like before world war one oh so be, before the valedictory address when he starts you say oh yeah yeah i mean he's okay. he's there in the midst of it um to watching the whole transition by the end of his career it's over the game is over um, one of the hardest things to convince students of when I've taken them to Oxford, or even just if I'm talking to them about it is when Americans go to Europe, they think they're seeing like this great civilization that they read about, but what they're really seeing is the, the, like the dead shell of that civilization. 
It's not Oof. there anymore, you know? So like the beautiful buildings are really there just like, you know, the turtle that washes up on sea and dies, like leaves a really beautiful skeleton, but that's not Europe anymore. And he's telling you that, you know, in here that if you want to, you know, teach at the university, now you have to get one of these PhDs. And he says, it's extremely rare that you have a 24 year old candidate who is ready for this kind of like actual research. And there's a great paragraph here that I remember the first time I read it, it was, it spoke to my soul uh, where he's talking about this. And he says, there are always exceptions. So there are some people, right, who are just made for research uh, as opposed to like steeping in the tradition, which is the juxtaposition he's making, right? The MA is for people who want to steep in the tradition. They know that they don't know much. Like, what do I know? I'm just some dude. So this is why it spoke to me because I was like, I am not a researcher, you know, natively. <laughs> Here's what he says. There's always exception. I have met some. I've had the good fortune of being associated with some able researching graduates, more of them than my small aptitude for the task of supervisor has merited. Some of them took to research like otters to swimming, but they are the exceptions that prove the thesis. And what's the thesis? The thesis is that most people in their 20s, maybe particularly in the humanities, don't know nearly enough about anything to be worth investing the time and money to be like, okay, go write some new insight into, you know, Augustine or whatever, when they've like read Augustine twice. Right. Uh, because what do they end up doing? And this is why you get all these PhD graduates who, what, what do they spend their lives doing? They're like, their, their topics become more and more narrow. Their topics become about like the footnote in something, you know, that someone wrote and it's like tertiary scholarship. Yeah. I mean, I've, I experienced this in a minute way in my own life when I go to write something, uh, or have the idea to write something. I, I feel like I have some small insight into a book. And I'm like, oh, this is how to respond to this other criticism. So I'm thinking about this. I brought this up a couple of weeks ago on podcast, different podcast with our fellow Catherine Bradshaw talking about Girard and Nietzsche and Machiavelli. And I, I reading Girard, I start to have this thought and then I'm like, well, I really need to really figure out Nietzsche if I'm going to talk about Girard. Mm. Um and then I get there, I'm like, well, I also really need to understand, you know, Schopenhauer, because that's who Nietzsche's responding to in this yeah. thing. And it, and the net just goes out eternally. It's like, I don't really know anything. How could I possibly produce knowledge when I don't even have a passing familiarity with some of these major players? Yeah. And and I think the the idea of how the older model would have worked is um, you want to get these really good minds steeping in the tradition for their whole lives. And out of that, they're going to write things. Um, and some of that stuff's going to be incredibly valuable, but it's not as if that like they're setting out to write something rather they're setting out for a form of life, which organically as it, as it were produces something. One of the ways that I try to explain a related phenomenon to people is, uh, that the moderns think of the mind a bit as a sausage casing. And this relates to what you talked about with Vogelin. And so the mind is a sausage casing. And what do you do with the sausage casing? You take all of the information. And you just grind it all up and just jam as much of it in until it's about to burst. <laughs> and like, that's it. Okay. So now you've got all the information in you. And there, there's an older model of thinking about the human mind, which is that it's this really delicate thing um, that's easy to destroy. And you have to kind of wrap it in silk and care for it. And you, you sort of hope and pray that a butterfly emerges from it someday. Hmm. That there's this form way in which like the, 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 
educative process of sort of what you're talking about. Like, oh, now I have to read Nietzsche. Oh, I got to read, you know, Schopenhauer. Like, why would we do this? Like, why do humans go about doing this? Well, there's two different reasons. One is the baseball card analogy that you used last time, John, where I got, I got to collect as many baseball cards as yeah. I can. Why? So yeah. I can win some baseball card game. Got to catch them all. Yeah. You gotta, <laughs> the Pokemon metaphor of education, you know? Um, <laughs> The but Pokemon then, model has replaced the German model. <laughs> that's, that's right. That is actually coming. That's I it's think the fulfillment <laughs> of the German model. <laughs> but but the other version is to say that no no like to become to be human uh, requires education, and that goes all the way back to Aristotle. Uh, Aristotle says that the and and Lewis parrots this when he's writing. He says the little human animal doesn't make the right responses. And he's referring to Aristotle there, who says that the the child has to be educated what you know approve of and what to disapprove of, what where they should ought to enjoy their pleasures and where they ought to actually feel pain, because it won't do it right the first time. And education is this ever expanding process of trying to, I don't know, wrap our arms around what it means for us to really inhabit being human. Right. And so that's why it doesn't stop. And you can tell our university system is failing when you meet people who are like, "Oh, I was so glad I finished college. Why?" So I never had to read another book again. <laughs> and then you just want to die inside. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, um, I don't know how much more I, I can say more about the, the UK system. No, that, that's great. I, I think, I think the really pertinent part is diving into what seems to be a civil war in the English faculty that Tolkien is alluding to in this valedictory address between Lang, which is one camp, which that's short for language and lit short for literature, uh, which is the other camp. And from my reading, Tolkien, on the one hand, is definitely on the Lang side. Um, and I'm using I'm using his abbreviations or shortenings, whatever, advisedly. He's, he's kind of making fun of it and thinks they're ugly constructions. But they're useful because he thinks the division of the discipline of English into Lang and Lit is artificial. And so we can use these ugly terms for them to point up the fact that these are bad divisions because while he's a language guy, he's a philologist, he wants to do the etymologies and whatnot. He really believes that they can be brought together and that that's the only way to really do it is these two aren't really separable, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the one other bit of uh, the history of the English higher education system that probably needs to be brought in is that uh, when we think, so like when I was going off to college, you know, my mom was very good, kind of went to a liberal arts college, really believed in the liberal arts, told my brother and I, you know, don't get a business degree, you know, which I think in the end was pretty good advice. So, you know, she says, get a real education. And so what, what were we supposed to study? Things in the liberal arts or the humanities. And that always included English. So weirdly, if you ask, I think, you know, pretty well-educated Americans, they would, they would think like, okay, philosophy, you know, theology, English. And what we don't realize is that English in the early 1900s, like the, the idea of getting a degree in English was almost brand new. Wow. Like it had never been done before. Um, the idea that you're going to do it in kind of modern literature, modern letters was very strange. So it was really like, I don't know what the proper analogy is, but it was like the communications degree of its day, you know? So you're saying Lewis and Tolkien were pioneering progressives. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, and, and when Lewis finishes his degree in greats, I think, or was it philosophy? He first gets a job teaching philosophy and then he can't get academic work because nobody's studying philosophy anymore. But the, 
the colleges are expanding, right? This is the era where we're trying to get more college students. We're still in the end of that era. I think we're now at the like absolute limit of how many <laughs> students, you know, you could possibly justify getting a college degree to. Um, but the universities are expanding, but where are they expanding? Students can't do greats, right? They can't study ancient Greek. What is greats? Greats is like classics. Yeah, it's like classics. It, okay. They would they would combine um, the the lit side and philosophy, really. Okay. Um, so he can't find work there. So they tell him, go get another degree. So he goes back and he gets a, his English degree. And it takes him one year to finish the whole three-year degree. Oh, my gosh. Uh, C.S. Lewis, as like a 23-year-old, he gets a, a first, which is like perfect you know, marks on the degree, which shows you it, it already wasn't as hard. Sure. Right? There's something... <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, Lewis is a genius. And I think he was a genius. But also, <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think it should tell us something about English. And then he finds work in the English departments, right? Why Why is there work in the English departments? And and you can read their letters where they're complaining about, you know, oh, these, these students who are taking English, you know, they're not the best students. <laughs> um, and you can think about what modern majors have been invented in the last 40 years and the way we talk about them, right? Mm. Um and and I and I think there's there's truth in it, and the ever expanding universe of majors is kind of a sign that this process is continuing in some ways. I will be a full throated supporter of communications as an academic discipline if communications graduates are forced to read Beowulf in Anglo-Saxon. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So these these um, language or literature students who couldn't do greats, why, why could they not study greats? What were they lacking? What were they missing? You know, that's a good question that I don't exactly know, but I can imagine that some of it is the loss of the, the kind of Greek and Latin requirements that would have been happening in the high schools in the UK. Because I know that that process was, was happening in the early 1900s as well. You, you had a major shift away. And of course, when we're talking about Oxford, we're talking about elite level schools, right? So it probably hung around in the elite level schools, maybe longer in the UK than it did in the in the lower schools. But also, it's just the expansion of it, right? It's like, there's only so many people who can actually do metaphysics at all. I mean, really. And so they just needed some degree that they could give, you know, rich kids, you know, kids from powerful families who wanted to go get their degrees, or up and coming, you know, bright kids who Oxford let in because they thought they were going to make it and they weren't quite making it. And so we needed to get them a degree somehow. So it sounds like there's two factors that kind of led to this. One is students that just don't have the aptitude, right, to do to do grades. In part because of democratization of academia. Right. Just, you know, interest, just the nature of them as human beings, just like, you know, what they're interested and capable of doing, but also their educational formation doesn't, you know, even if they had the aptitude, they would have some catching up to do with the languages and like the history of, you know, philosophy and just formative experiences that would allow them to do greats. They just wouldn't have them. Exactly. Yeah. If I mean, if you haven't been taught uh, Greek in high school uh, to the point where you can read more or less fluently, you're not going to be able to make it greats. And so as that pool dries up, uh, they got to, there's something else they're going to do. So this is kind of what they do. So when it's initially formed uh, and Tolkien references this, it was formed as language and literature. And this is a formulation which you still see in a lot of modern language departments. It'll be the language and literature department. And you see it even in like with the college board, like at my high school, the kind of advanced level humanity students in junior year would take AP language. 
Mm-hmm. And then senior year, they would take AP literature. Mm-hmm. That's Lang and Lit right there, instantiated in the high school curriculum even. Exactly. And at the at the collegiate level, you know, at least one reason why there's this battle going on in Oxford is to both Tolkien and Lewis are in, in the English side. You know, they're, they're teaching English. That's primarily what they're doing. Um, though Lewis is always still tutoring some in philosophy on the side. You know, there's, there's a little bit of uh, his relationship with the philosophy departments. But like early in Lewis's career, he has stories of staying up late. They had to teach um, Anglo-Saxon. Every student had to learn Anglo-Saxon to get your degree. You know, you had to be proficient in sort of finishing some sort of exam in Anglo-Saxon. And so to incentivize the students to show up, C.S. Lewis would tell them he had a beer jug in his office and they could come for tutorials. And when they would come for tutorials, they would be drinking from the beer jug and pounding out the Anglo-Saxon, you know, verse from Beowulf on the desk and he would you know, make them. <laughs> and the, <laughs> So you have these kind of funny images. Well, of course, that limits the number of students who can engage in this process. Because if you're just having them read novels from, you know. Yeah, so he turns it into, he turns it into greats of the British Isles. That's right. Rather than reading, you know, Regency era novels. Yeah, so the lit era people, the people who are, who Tolkien's referring to here as lit, are, are saying, let's just study the literature. Um, and then there are other people who I think are the ancestors of modern linguistics departments, because linguistics wasn't really a thing at this point. And so language and literature are splitting. And actually in the US system, you can look at this historically, that language, like the actual language requirements for Anglo-Saxon or even for a foreign language requirement to be able to get an English degree. Like my brother had to do that at a, at a good liberal arts college that he went to. He went to Wake Forest and he had to become proficient. If he couldn't really master another foreign language, they weren't going to give him his English degree. So he had to master German. But a lot of places started just cutting out either any ancient, you know, English or any foreign language requirement or really dumbing those down and saying you could just study the literature. And as that's happening, you have linguistics departments growing. And he actually refers to the people who are kind of really interested in the historical development of words and the ways in which that they're making their own space. What's fascinating about Lewis and Tolkien and why I think you guys will love them and your listeners are going to really dig them is that they, he doesn't really associate himself with the language people in that sense. He doesn't think language should ever go off and become its own department. Because the study of the words is always the study of the stories that the words are about. You know, if you just, you're not really doing philology if you don't like the stories. Yeah. And, and what I, I'm going to, I'm going to get it wrong, which will be a huge embarrassment for myself, but there's a famous argument between Owen Barfield and Max or what's his name? There's the linguist, the German Mueller. Weber. Yeah. Is it Weber or is it Mueller? Oh, it's Max Mueller. It's Max that's, Mueller. Yeah, oh, I've, I've yeah. crowned myself in glory, Ryan. Oh, that's wonderful. And then someone's <laughs> going to find out that we're both. Yeah, that's right. Gonna... <laughs> um, uh, so anyway, it's uh, one of them is saying that myths are a disease of language. Right. And you can see this kind of technical Germanic approach to the, the study of language and literature. Um, myths and just gloss that for a second. Myths being a disease of language. What does that mean? They're, they're trying to understand what's the relationship between the development of human languages and the reason why everywhere you look in ancient human languages, they're telling stories about the gods. And this is a modern German atheistic kind of like, you know, proto left uh, concept, you know, trying to reconstruct human origins and why we ended up where we are and, and how we can really get rid of all that stuff now. 
And so as a, as a culture tries to find ways to justify itself and develops new concepts in its language, it develops kind of stories about some man who is actually a god and sends thunder down on the earth or something. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, or, or like the, I think the test case that they use more often is wind. So they say like, people see wind blowing and then they're talking about wind blowing and then somebody's like, well, why is the wind blowing? And they don't really know yet. So some guy's just like, oh, the gods are doing it. And so like, because we have language to describe some reality that we don't fully understand, we just bring in the gods to kind of fill in the understanding, right? And then hence spiritus, which yep. in Latin can be obviously spirit, but also... Breath and wind. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And soul. And soul. So... um Tolkien says in other places that this is the one great thing that Owen Barfield taught him because Owen Barfield, you know, thinks really hard about these questions. Another inkling Barfield for those who don't know. He's, he's arguably the last inkling to die. And what he said was, no, actually, you know, he had it completely wrong. It language is actually a disease of mythology that embedded in the words we're using, particularly the, the closer you get to their origins, the more true this is not the less embedded in the language is always these sets of stories that are related to human desires about ultimate things, human pieties, um, a human sense of the relation of the self to the greater world outside the self. And so language is given to us because of our inner experience of reality as being imbued with some sort of mysterious and mystical transcendence. Tolkien, I think, knew this, and, and so did Lewis. And that's why when they get involved in these curricular wars, and I have an essay on this that I'm hoping to write for you guys at some point, but I'm awesome. I have to find some time to, to get it on paper. Um, when they get involved in the curricular wars, they're not actually arguing on the side of the linguists because hmm. the hardcore Lang people are like, no, no, it's just about etymology. It's just about you know, phoneme formation over time or whatever. They just want to get hyper, hyper technical with like, you know, things that I don't even really understand. And they always said, no, no, no. The one serves the other. They have to work together. And so that image of Lewis pounding the table and like, you know, shouting <laughs> Beowulf at his like students who are slowly getting drunk and certainly terrified of him. Like that's their image of what the point of it all is. So that, that kind of explains why Lang Right, will suffer from from the great divorce between Lang and Lit. Mm -hmm. You end up with, you know, linguistics, and it's just terrible. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> tell us what and, you really think, John. Yeah. Um, and is there is there a an argument for how Lit suffers from from the same great divorce? Absolutely, and actually, I think I'm like the living embodiment of it in so many ways <laughs> <laughs> because i've never read like i've always really loved both literature and actually languages like i love philology i could spend all day on you know the oxford encyclopedia or the oxford oxford english dictionary or, or wiktionary is another great little kind of internet version of it but but also i think professionally so i teach in a great books program which we should talk about at some point is distinct from a classics department and the major distinction is everything is done in English and the students don't necessarily have any exposure to any of the languages that these things are originally in. And the more you teach in that space, the more you realize how fundamentally necessary it is to get close to the language that it's actually written in. 
you know, the more different translations you read of something, the more you realize that the thing these different translators are orbiting around is like some real concrete substance that you're required to have if you want to actually be able to engage in it. Because arguments will come up that you can't settle by by appealing to a translator if you actually care about the meaning of the literature itself. If you care about the meaning of the literature, you're also caring about the meaning of the words. And so I've obviously, you know, I've got quite a bit of English under my belt. Uh, I've also got a little bit of Greek uh, from, you know, years of studying it, some better years than others. And I have seen this happen, though, in classes where no one speaks the language. We used to read Dante in a translation that had the Italian on one side and the English on the other. And because of that, even though we didn't really, no one spoke Italian, uh, we could notice that this Italian word was being repeated here and in another place. And so even though the translator was translating the two lines differently, we saw that Dante was making a connection here that the translator had missed. To me, that stands out in my mind as just one of those moments where you realize you can't really study the literature without the language. Because what you're talking about is, to think of it more philosophically and less practically, what you're talking about is the meaning of the words. And what is the, me- what is the meaning of words? Like how do words communicate meaning? That's ultimately the question you're asking anytime you're engaging in literature, which is why I have a friend who uh, has a PhD in English from Stanford and got and finished with it and said, you know, it really is just mediocre philosophy. And she's really actually quite bright, ended up with a tenure track gig someplace, not mentioning who or where. But I think that's precisely correct, that, that what you're asking is, what is the meaning of word? Why do humans talk? Why are words there at all? Tolkien has this this line and this this address, philology is the foundation of humane letters. So it seems like without the philology, the lit is without foundation. It just doesn't have the kind of anchor that it needs to be truly fruitful. Which brings to mind a, an analogy to, I mean, we are trying to explore a new humanism, um, but it brings to mind that kind of humanistic creed of going back to the sources, of going ad fontes, uh, which there's a way in which um, the in part, the need for that return to the sources is now not because of the accretion as it was in the early modern period, because of the accretion of scholastic and neo-scholastic commentaries on this text and then another commentary on that commentary. And it's like, why don't we just go back and read Aristotle? I mean, it's what they did. Um, But now it's, we've gotten so far from philologically speaking, from the text. We're just reading translations and we don't really know what's going on because we've unanchored the study of literature from Lang. And we're, we're, the, we're the kind of orphaned children of this great divorce that happened. Uh, I should note that I use the phrase ad fontes advisedly because that is uh, the podcast Colin does every week with his colleagues at Davenant Institute. You should all go check it out. Very fun podcast. Bro motion at its best. Thanks, man. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. I mean, the simplest way to put it for people. So this is for the, you know, if there's listeners who are like, you know, thinking that we're just getting galaxy brained over here. Here's a question for you. Imagine that you heard someone say, I want to study literature, but I don't want any language. What would that person, what could they possibly mean? (laughs) You know, (laughs) it doesn't. So even if you're studying modern English, so right here, we're studying a modern English text, right? Like that's what we're doing on this podcast right now. Well, he uses the word 
art, you know, on page six to understand what he means in that sentence. It is always a valid question to say, what does art mean? What is meant by art? How does art go about meaning art in the way that you think that it means it? And as soon as these kinds of questions come up, you're doing the study of language. And that's his point. And, and while that sounds like a stupid example right there, you know, we could find various words on which actually it does hinge. Yeah. You know, if you, if you take the words in some, it always hinges on it. Yep. Yep. Yeah. There's a great line in this address where, I mean, some, some of the stuff does sound very galaxy brained. And I think Tolkien knew that. And so he says, uh, I have once or twice, not so long ago, been asked to explain or defend this language to say, I suppose, how it can possibly be profitable or enjoyable. And now I'm just like imagining Tolkien as Gandalf, as if I were some curious wizard with arcane knowledge, with a secret recipe that I was unwilling to divulge. And then Tolkien then goes on to give a give a pitch for you, listener, to sign up with the Ancient Language Institute. He says, if you do not know any language, learn some or try to. You should have done so long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned classics and great books. This will be a nice kind of tail end to what we're talking about, because these are words or phrases used somewhat equivocally, and it can get confusing. Obviously, there's the sense, there's a kind of everyday man on the street sense of these words, like great books, these are just good books, classics, these are just, you know, kind of the same thing, just great things that people... Good book with an army, man, that's what a classic is. (laughs) <laughs> or uh, an accreditation. Right, yeah, well, an army of bureaucrats. Yeah. But then there's a more technical sense, like the great great books as a movement or as a curriculum. If you are reading the Wikipedia article about great books, Colin, your institution is on that Wikipedia page. St. Mary's is one of the That's right. places that has a Wikipedia identified great Wikipedia books program. Wikipedia approved professor of great books. I profess that books are great. You should put that in your LinkedIn. (laughs) It's going to, I'm going to make a ton of money. (laughs) And then, and then there's also a more technical definition of classics, which we got into on the Vogelin episode. Um, But it's something like the study of the ancient Mediterranean, in particular, the Greeks and the Romans. And Vogelin seems to agree with Tolkien that philology is there at the root of it. You, can't do classics if you're not doing philology. I'd be interested in hearing from you what you think about great books as an approach to education and what great books practitioners, I mean, speaking as someone, that's such a horrible phrase, great books practitioners. (laughs) (laughs) Tolkien's uh, cursing me from his grave. Uh, <laughs> people who teach in a great books program, what they might have to learn from the valedictory address or the kind of inklings approach, if you can call it such a thing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So the, the best thing I could say about the great books approach is that it is a genuine attempt at recovering a conception of what it means to do the liberal arts, you know, in this kind of older, almost medieval English model, but in a modern UK, you know, a modern American German research university setting. It's sort of the, an attempt to recover this and, and offer it because what do you, what do you do? 
you know, most great books programs, like the one I teach in at this point, and more colleges used to have them and they've sort of devolved. So they're a little bit like the, you know, residual tail bone that a human has that kind of is indicative that they used to have a tail or something. It's kind of like a gen, gen ed freshman seminar. It's like, that's right. Yeah. I remember when you were an undergrad, Ryan, and you were taking some course where you had to read Augustine's Confessions, and there was some professor there who was just like, I don't know what his sexual hangups are. You know, why does this guy have so many problems? Um, (laughs) And that's that's basically like your great books education, you know? Quick story, quick story about about that class, um, not about the kind of interpretive violence done to Augustine. Um, but it, it was that one, that class was more of a great books class than anything else I took at that college. Um, mm-hmm. and it was specifically styled as such, mm-hmm. uh, it was from the Hebrew Bible to the death of God. So we, we read scripture, Hebrew scripture and got all the way to Nietzsche. Um, and actually I think we went slightly beyond Nietzsche, but anyways, just, and particularly relevant to these, um, <laughs> these Anglo-Saxon guys. We read from antiquity up through late antiquity to Augustine. And I kid you not, there was an over almost a millennium long gap in our reading list from Augustine to Dante. Nothing happened (laughs) in the West that was written until like high medieval period after Augustine. That's why they call it the Dark Ages, man, because nothing happened during that whole period. Nothing was written. Yeah. They forgot how to write. Language just disappeared in the written form. It was all mimes. It was all what? Mimes. Mimes. I thought you said memes. <laughs> Related. <laughs> Related. <laughs> and and the crazy part is the, the professors were aware of this. Like, because our syllabus had a chart, like a timeline oh, with yeah. all the readings. So they graphically represented the fact that they really believed nothing of import had happened for a thousand years. Mm-hmm. Vestigial tale, indeed. Totally, totally without purpose, in my case, at least. So the, the great books programs, if I understand them, and the context of Tolkien's discussion, they would just be a form of lit, right? Well, here, here's why I wanted, uh, here's why I'm, you're, you're making me make the defense even more robust, which I'm fine with. Um, it, it actually does quite a lot. Like even just think about this silly class that, you know, Ryan had to take. Um, at some point, by keeping this class around, some group of scholars are forced to wrestle with the question of like, one, you know, what matters from these periods? Two, how do they fit together? Like, why did humans start saying this new thing uh, rather than this other thing? So, so for example, why does glory become such a theme by the time you get to Virgil? Um, and why does it as a theme shift from the theme that it was for Homer? Like the meaning of glory is clearly different in those two texts. And if you have a bunch of faculty teaching these things, they're just going to kind of puzzle this through and ask these kinds of questions. So by keeping it around, it, you know, it does something for the students. I think it does even more for the for the faculty. Interesting. And it offers you a real opportunity. It, it, there's no guarantee, right? But you can never teach anybody anything. So there's no guarantee anytime you have a class on anything that anyone's going to learn anything. Um, it's always a miracle. It's just like, you know, oh, a student, you know, showed up and perked up and, you know, had a question. That's great. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. the, the caterpillar sprouted a wing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and so if you if you really believe in that older model of education, then you keep it around because... 
it's, this is it, you know, like you want to keep one thinking about what are excellent examples of human writing. And two, you want to keep exposing young people to it because you're just wrapping them in that silk, you know, hoping that, hoping the butterfly emerges because you can't just, I can't put it in their head. There's no such thing. It doesn't, it's not a real process. The sausage grinder is not real, even though we think it is. The other thing to say about them in response to what you're saying, John, is I actually would disagree that language isn't part of it. Because even though they're doing it in English, as long as they are actually reading these things and asking the question, what does this mean? Hmm. Not, not what can we do with it? And not, how, you know, what do you think about it? Or even worse, how do you feel about it? Um, mm-hmm. the kind of therapeutic or efficient or judgmental questions. Right. Um, as long as you're asking, what does it mean? I think you really are still doing the Lang side of it, even though you're doing it kind of at one step removed, right? With a translator as your kind of buddy. Uh, but then note these, these programs, as we were talking about before the show started, are always changing what translations. So at least on the faculty level, it's unavoidable. Those conversations are unavoidable if the faculty are consistently reading these things. You know, you'll, you'll have somebody in the hall and you'll ask them a question. You know, this translation doesn't say, I fear the Greeks, even when they come bearing gifts. It says, even when they come bearing gifts, I fear the Greeks. You know, what's, what's going on on the grammatic level here, you know, in the Latin? And you kind of find someone who knows or, or you find somebody who knows another translation, even though neither of you know Greek and you kind of puzzle it out and then you can look it up online. And so I think it's always happening. Right. Um, on various different levels because it's unavoidable. And this is interesting inbuilt assumption or assumption, but inbuilt thing you're working with that uh, is fascinating to me is you're talking about the benefits it has for the scholars, for the teachers, not just the students. Because in my kind of unreconstructed 21st century consumer mindset, I'm like, colleges are for teenagers to come to and get knowledge stuffed into them and leave and then Mm -hmm. enter the workforce. But really colleges, they're for the cocooning and nurturing of these students, but they're not just make work programs for people like Lewis, who said he really couldn't do anything with his life besides um, being academic. It's not just him. It's also his his high school teacher said it of him. (laughs) (laughs) This this guy is completely useless. (laughs) Yeah. So something something valuable is happening there after you become the master or the doctor. And the curriculum is in some way for you to maybe produce knowledge is too German, but there's something that we've probably lost sight of that you're, you're articulating. Yeah. When I, I taught this course in the history of higher education and I actually got to bring some students to Oxford this a couple of years ago, right before the pandemic, actually. And one of the best students in class was really struggling when he got there with why no one was allowed to walk on the grass. The students aren't allowed to walk on the grass in Oxford. And there's some patches of grass no one's allowed to walk on. And he's, it's just like, this was like, you know, to his egalitarian modern American mind, it was like. Wait, so, so, so teachers can walk on some of the grass, but students can't? That's right. Yeah. Students and visitors are not allowed on the grass in all these like ancient universities. But then the yeah. professors, you know, if you're a member of the college, it's your grass, you can walk on it. And then there, even some of them, there's like passage, patches where it's like, there's a tree in the grass in this little courtyard of this ancient alcove that you can just kind of do laps around while you're thinking about stuff and no one's ever allowed on it oh, wow. unless you're like cutting it, you know? Um, 
And so the, one of those most famous ones is like the Harry Potter tree, the uh, famous scene from Harry Potter. Uh, there's like a tree under which oh, Harry the Potter was. Willow. Yeah. yeah, I guess. I don't really know anything about Harry Potter. But anyway, the students all wanted to see it. And that's one of those patches and everybody's pissed off. They can't go there. So this kid's very troubled by why they can't walk on the grass. A bunch of conversations later, he eventually comes to realize he thinks of the university as being about getting knowledge to him. And, uh, you know, what, what we've talked about is, well, actually, in some ways, it's, it's the university is really there for the, for the scholars. Uh, and that's kind of the Aristotelian conception of it. Like, it's just the, the good life of contemplation for the few. Um, yeah. But actually, I think the, the, the fact of like these patches of grass, these like, you know, kind of sacred things that you're just not supposed to touch or whatever. Universities are actually ultimately supposed to be there for the preservation of themselves for the sake of society. Hmm. Um, that there's something, you know, I had a, there was a student who came to my school from China who was like super jaded, like Marxism had just like whitewashed his brain, you know, and, um, but he knew it was wrong, right? That there was like more out there. And, and it's like, how did you know that? He was like, because I used to watch these Chinese sitcoms. And there would always be like a guy who finds like an old book that falls out of a cabinet, you know, with a scroll in it or whatever. And he'd like open the scroll and it'd be like ancient wisdom. There's something in there. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, dude, that's what universities are really for. Hmm. To like preserve that and keep it alive. You know, that hope. And so maybe that's something that the, the German model, which we've been denigrating, can point us towards is that liberal education isn't just for kind of leisurely recreation, but that it has some real benefit to its society. And, you know, we, we can agree probably that endless dissertations on footnotes of commentaries of treatises probably isn't that, but there is something that should be happening. Yeah. And note that Tolkien doesn't say, I mean, he's not, you kind of expect if you know him well enough, you expect him to be like a hardcore reactionary trad cat. And he's not. Yeah. Cause he doesn't <laughs> say the German university is, you know, the death of us modernity should be done with. And no, you know, we should go back to everybody just bending the knee to the King. Um, he says, I have met some of these people who like really can research. And of course what he thinks theoretically is going on with research is going to be different than somebody who's a true materialist, right? Who thinks you're producing new knowledge. You're not making knowledge, you're not spinning it out of your belly, like a, like a spider with a web. Um, what real research is, is uncovering, uh, previously unexposed insights into the nature of reality. He's like, that's good. And the university has to stay open for these people, but most young people should actually be forbidden from trying this because they're not ready for it. And two, if we expect every research, everyone who's teaching the university to be doing this all the time, we're necessarily going to forget the other piece of what the university is for, which is hanging on to the vast storehouse of learning and wisdom and knowledge that has come before us and finding ways to transmit that into the future for such a time as when it may be needed. Right. And even when it's not needed, uh, it's pleasant. Yeah. It, there's just, there's something so enjoyable about reading the Aeneid with 19 year olds. You know, it's just worth doing. Tolkien has this sentence in the valedictory address where he says, and it's a pity that so often the last of the growing feeding years are spent in a premature attempt to add knowledge while the vast existing storehouses remain unvisited. So it's not that, you know, it's intrinsically a problem. You know, intrinsically evil, right, to try to add 
knowledge to the great storehouse of humanity. But part of his critique is that we're trying to do it prematurely. Yeah. And, and again, this really spoke to me the first time I taught it. I don't know. It was probably eight years ago. I had a master's degree. Maybe I was like part, almost done with my second master's degree. I'd been teaching for a while, but I didn't have a PhD. And I was, I was co-teaching this with a buddy of mine who actually already had his PhD. He's a little older. And it was just really helpful. I was reading it. And then he just said to me, he's like, you know, what he's saying is you're doing it right. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh man, you know, cause for so long when you're in academia and you don't quite have your PhD yet, it's easy to just kind of get like really down on yourself or whatever. And, oh, and I don't know the languages and I'm just lesser than and it's no, no, that's not what I'm doing at all. Like I'm doing it for the love, man. Like that's why I'm in the game. I know there's no jobs, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I know that you're not here for the money. Um, I know that there's no glory. I'm not going to become famous, you know, for being an adjunct professor who teaches the Aeneid in English year after year. So why am I doing it? I mean, I'm doing it because I really believe that this vast storehouse of knowledge is real. And I, I want to continue this process of, of learning and of, you know, submitting myself and, and digging into that storehouse for the sake of my kids, man. And, and I mean that both in the sense of my children, you know, my, my oldest is nine now and also for my students at the college. And like, I'm now, I'm almost done with my PhD, you know, but that doesn't even matter. Like, that's not the point. And am I producing some new insight? I, I think it'll be pretty interesting and new, uh, but it's not like, I don't expect it to be, you know, the Twilight of the Gods by Nietzsche or the, the Confessions of, you know, Augustine. <laughs> and note how many books they cite in their, uh, in their works, you know? I mean, they cite a few, but they're not going around like, you know, Augustine, you really should look at the secondary scholarship on Plotinus before you uh, just start <laughs> talking, you know, running your mouth about him. Augustine, you do not have enough baseball <laughs> cards to write what yeah. you think you're writing. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. And on that note, that's that's why we're doing this, both this funny little podcast and ALI, trying to help people spin that web in the multiple senses of it, both in the, the cocooning uh, and metamorphosis of minds, but also the, the web that goes outwards and that spins ever outward, connecting you to more and more stuff. It's something that Colin's doing, not just, um, as a guest on our podcast or a professor or on Ad Fontes, his podcast, but also teaching at Davenant Hall, which I don't know if you want to pitch that really quickly. Oh yeah. Uh, so, you know, I love your project. I've, I've been fans of you guys for a long time at ALI. And what you guys are doing is you're teaching not just the language itself and in a really novel way, right? Through spoken Greek, spoken Latin. But then the goal is that you're connecting them immediately to literature, right? So Ryan, you're, yes. you said last time you're learning it, you know, you're learning the language and you're reading it, you know, from day one. Davenant Hall, we're, uh, we're trying to do a similar project of kind of recover these aspects of the university that are just hard to find now. Like if you want to go to a university or, or even a seminary, Christian seminary, and learn theology, let's say, you're most likely t- to take a course in like systematic theology, which is like the course you described, Ryan, right? They're going to cover like 18 baseball cards from over a thousand years of, you know, Christian history and you'll collect them all. Right. And we really think that's not actually how most people learned anything for most of human history. And it's been detrimental for our culture. It's been detrimental for the Christian church. Um, and so if you, if you take a course with us, we always tell people, you're not going to get a theological map. Uh, you're going to become a theological mountaineer. And we basically pair you up with some scholar who's working in some field 
and they're going to take you up the mountain and show you like, you know, how they're making their approach to knowing whatever it is they're trying to know. And so, yeah, we, we do courses in theology. We do, I think, offer some language courses. I, I always teach in the philosophy end of things. And so I'm teaching a course on Plato right now. And if you take my class, we're not going to read some textbook that tells you about Plato. Like we just read Plato and then we get on and we, you know, we have some discussion throughout the week, but then I get on on Saturday mornings and we're, we have two hours where we just like hash it out, figure out what Plato is talking about. And you're doing that alongside scholars. Yeah. So if you're bummed out by uh, the state of education, which you have every right to be, uh, don't be too bummed out because like us, there's lots of people out there trying to create or rekindle something living that can eventually grow large enough to inhabit those ruins, those skeletons that have washed up on shore, um, that we're, we're just little ants walking through them, but someday we'll fit the scale of those ruins. Jonathan, any, anything you want to lead us out with? Final conclusions? No, not really. I think this was, this is great. It's great to have you, Colin. And yeah, looking forward to, to the next one, chatting about how you got red-pilled by Virgil <laughs> or something like that. Uh, I think that's uh, that's how all the kids get red-pilled, isn't it? Isn't that what red-pilled means? It's just that you read Virgil? I, I believe that's the origin. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. Please share us with your friends if this won't be, you know, won't bring you into disrepute. If not, you can keep it to yourself, but do give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.